Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm with Haven Pell, who's the pundificator on his blog, and we're going to tackle something we both read, which was a series of predictions made by a VC from NYC, which is a blog from a venture capitalist. He made a few very sort of sweeping predictions for the 2020s that I thought would be interesting for us to sort of take in turn and see what we thought of them. Haven, how are you? I'm well, thanks, Fraser. How are you? How was your week? Uh, week was good, getting geared up to get back into the swing of things. <laughs> Twas ever thus. So the VC from New York City, what do we know about him? I actually know very little about him, except every now and again, I get a comment from something I wrote about something that I wrote from a wonderful fellow called Bob Timpson. And Bob Timpson is a friend of many decades. He and I were at college together. And he is a very clear thinker. He spent a significant portion of his life at IBM. And he is a bright guy and a clear thinker. So he sent this along, I think, actually, in response to the prediction story I wrote a couple of weeks ago. This one is particularly good because it has a 10-year time frame. And the 10-year time frame, the predictions for the decade, seem to me to be more um, more important than predictions for a um, more tactical one-year period. Right. Now that makes sense. You've got time to see them play out. And at the same time, they aren't so short-lived that they're immediately wrong if they didn't happen to take place within the next 365 days. Right. So let's dive in. What did we start with, the VC from NYC's predictions? Okay, so the first one, they are numbered. The first one is a little bit long. And so the way I thought about it was to sort of divide it up into little parts. And the first one relates to climate change. So our VC from NYC begins with the looming climate crisis will be to this century what the two world wars were to the previous one. That's bold. (laughs) That is. That's a biggie. (laughs) And... I don't really have an idea how to predict the magnitude. And I find that it is a particularly frustrating field because the signal to noise ratio from both sides is low. It seems to me there's lots of believe my side, believe my side, and very little sort of or nothing that I have found that makes me think, okay, I think I've got this one. And I feel very frustrated by that. Well, the two world wars component of it, which, I mean, if we go from sort of the 1910s to the 1930s, he's already kind of broken his 10-year cycle with that prediction. But one element that I think is peculiar is that the concept of world war, especially the two world wars being pre-nuclear in many ways, right up until Truman's drop, I have trouble conceiving of the notion of a full-fledged world war in this day and age where the world is so global and interconnected. It would seem to me to be a total breakdown of society if it got that far. I agree. I don't know whether the point of his sentence is that he is analogizing the damage of climate change to the damage of the two world wars rather than suggesting that they might cause a world war. My inclination is that it is certainly an important topic 
I don't yet feel that it is at the level that the most enthusiastic supporters of the anxiety they haven't convinced me yet. Right. Where I come out on it, too, is that I think climate change is going to be a significant source of conflict. So I would agree with the statement on that front. I think there are going to be skirmishes and conflicts over things like water. If indeed the poles are melting, and Russia and its shipping lanes are going to create issues and economic growth for them that create conflicts with the U.S. and maybe other countries. You know, you see the wildfires and so on in Australia, even in the U.S., it's going to create issues that seem to have not been dealt with in the previous century. But uh, World War, I'm not quite there yet, I don't think. Well, let's go on to his next sentence. That reads, it will require countries and institutions to reallocate capital from other endeavors to fight against a warming planet. I can't think of anything to disagree with on that. I think that makes a lot of sense. I would also throw in a caveat with that that would say that if the idea is that we're going to be fighting wars with other countries over climate change, or any countries are fighting other countries over climate change, that there's going to be a real causation effect issue that I think needs to be proven. And where I come out on that is... You know, as the U.S. is taking great pains, in my opinion, to sort of reduce its carbon footprint, add energy diversification and so on, even though tactical policy changes are sort of going in the other direction under Trump, the idea that we're going to be able to force China or Russia or other places to do things differently or to reduce their carbon footprint, that's going to be more economic than military, I would suspect, if indeed it happens at all. I think all of those countries have unique climate issues in and of themselves that they have to solve in order for their populations to really sort of keep a grasp on the institutions that are governing them. On the whole, I think you're right. I think there's going to be a different mindset in terms of how capital and resources are allocated. It'll be interesting to see where that goes. Some places will over-allocate capital towards the resources that they have that keep them in an economically viable position and you know, other places that can afford to sort of be more prescient in terms of or responsible in terms of their role in the environment will be able to try to diversify a little bit more. We'll have to see. Well, and I think that an element that may differ from the war message is an emigration message. There are, if indeed it becomes as serious as the worst case scenario, then there are going to be a lot of people who are moving from places that are not really inhabitable to places that are. And the people who feel dominion over the places that are habitable are going to resent that. Really good point. I think the U.S. has its own immigration issues, but they don't seem to be climate related. That's all economically related. But if it becomes climate related, then then we're in an interesting spot. And that's something that I don't think we've really, geez, I mean, you get back to sort of the potato famine and those types of issues where people had to leave because they were starving. It feels like we haven't really had to deal with that at the American level for a very long time. Well, it might be far worse for the Europeans. The Europeans with uh, if larger portions of Africa become really uninhabitable, people are going to make a very logical decision, which is to leave. So, OK, so next part of the climate change one is this is the decade we will begin to see this reallocation of capital. We will see carbon taxed like the vice that it is in most countries around the world this decade, including in the U.S., my sense has always been that a carbon tax was probably a pretty good idea. It seems to me a better idea 
to say, okay, this is what it's going to cost you, so you fix your own problem, rather than here are the rules that we are devising that you must use to fix your own problem. I've always been skeptical about rule writing. I think it's extremely difficult, and I would rather see people incented to solve the problem rather than told precisely how they have to solve the problem. Yeah, I mean, I tend to think that it's going to be difficult to enact carbon taxation, certainly in the United States, within the next 10 years. I think there really has to be that kind of 9-11 moment for the, the government to sort of enact that kind of policy. You certainly aren't going to need, aren't going to see it with a Republican sort of power component in place. And whether that changes or differs over the next 10 years, we can only muse and speculate. You know, in other country, I doubt it's going to happen in China. I doubt it's going to happen in India and other places which are trying to build economies with full force. Now, a carbon tax in European countries seems more possible to me, and it's something that I feel like they're more enlightened on the subject and that is they have to raise money in order to function, in order to put forward these types of goals. We'll see. However, you look at a country like Germany, which hasn't really been receptive to nuclear power versus a country like France that has, I think it's going to be contingent on these countries that have some level of energy independence, sort of the Norways and the Norwegian countries that have oil reserves and or geothermic access, that type of thing. They're more in a position to be able to enact carbon taxes. You know, those that aren't willing to go nuclear or sort of use what they've got. I think it's going to be a lot more difficult for them to do. So I'm kind of lukewarm on this one. I don't think the carbon taxation is really going to happen in a big way, even if there continues to be evidence of evidence of environmental damage, et cetera. Fair point. I guess we're going to see. Okay, next part of it is we will see real estate values collapse in some of the most affected regions, and we will see real estate values increase in regions that benefit from the warming climate. It strikes me we certainly should. I have always wondered about continuing to support homeowners insurance in places that constantly flood. And I think that there's still enough land in the world that we should move to other ones that don't flood. And the world changes. And if people move from place to place to find the most conducive ones, that makes sense to me. Of course, it changes the status quo and is thus pretty unpopular. What do you think? Yeah, I view this as, I look at this through the prism of the plot to Superman 1, when Lex Luthor buys up all the property in Nevada and tries to set off an earthquake to have California drop into the ocean so that his real estate values increase. I think that it's going to be a major trend. I think you see it already in the insurance components. You, know, you look at uh, Malibu, for instance, where most insurers are walking away from insuring Malibu properties because of the wildfires and mudslides and everything that's going there, and that it's becoming a real luxury good to be able to live on the beach in an area that could be burned down shortly. I think down in, in the Miami area, I think there's a lot of sort of input as to whether or not it makes sense to invest somewhere where you get a big one coming straight at you hurricane-wise every year, and it depends whether or not you're going to be able to make it. I think the developers really start thinking about stuff like that. It's no coincidence that most major real estate development groups now, I think, have full-on economists, to be sure, but they also have full-on weather experts to try to understand 
what they're making big 50 to 100 year type bets on when they develop properties. All of that to me makes sense. Now, whether we're going to see real estate values collapse, I'm not sure. Again, being in the US and being in New York in particular, I have home bias. I can't tell exactly what's happening in the rest of the country as it relates to real estate values, as it relates to weather. I can see it more or I can read about it more when it's more economically driven. New York City's real estate values have had hiccups at the high end, et cetera, but not because of climate change, but because of other economic and geopolitical reasons and sort of taxation infrastructure reasons. That to me is sort of put the cause on climate change. I'm not sure. Obviously, I agree with the statement. If Florida goes into the water or California earthquakes into the the sea, although I don't know if an earthquake is exactly a climate change issue. It's again, another problem, but I'm lukewarm on that. I think there will be real estate spasms, value spasms, et cetera. But up until there's a real causation component that's been picked up on and sort of put into place, I'm not quite there. It's a long, very long-winded way of saying I acknowledge that there's climate change and that people are, in most cases, probably the cause of it through sort of carbon use, et cetera. But I think there's also always been climate change. And so in many ways, that might already built into sort of the real estate market. I think it's especially difficult to when you have multiple causes. And I think you've identified some very good ones, economic changes, taxation changes and so forth. I think when you have multiple causes, it is very difficult for the mass of people to understand specifically what is causing what or more importantly, what is contributing to what. And so that's a difficult, but that's more of a political question of whether you can convince people that something is happening. So let's go on to his next prediction, which is we will see massive capital investments in protecting critical regions and infrastructure. Well, I have two thoughts on that. Yes, and it will create jobs. I agree with both of those. I think just politically speaking, people who have vested interests in things that already exist are going to be in a position to allocate capital towards things that maintain those types of scenarios, whether it's Florida or New York or California or Alaska or what have you. It's important to have that component in place. And the infrastructure spending, I think everyone, I think that's something everyone can agree upon that if it creates jobs and it creates economic opportunity, I think that that's going to be vital going forward. My caveat to that is that there are themes at play that are going to challenge the way we allocate resources as far as infrastructure, things like driverless cars, things like remote working, things like 5G, all of which are going to make different areas of the country more usable in terms of economic growth, at least with sort of the intellectual capital economy that I think the United States has gravitated toward. So I think that while infrastructure is going to, spending is going to go way up, and I am big time in favor of that slash believe it's going to happen, the protected regions, there will be some competition for those dollars. Definitely. Okay, he predicts that nuclear power will make a resurgence around the world, particularly smaller reactors that are easier to build and safer to operate. To me, it seems as if that should be a part of any answer, especially for those who want there to be answers. And sadly, that is not the universe of people who are active in the field. There are some people who prefer to keep the problem than have it solved, but I think that 
nuclear power should be part of any solution. I file that under, it's something I very much hope happens. And it's something that I think is important to solve for climate change and energy in particular. But I agree with you. I think there are a lot of a lot of interests that are afraid of it. And again, sort of nuclear power becomes more and more prevalent. It opens up a variety of security questions that will have to be answered. But these are things that I think are going to have to be answered anyway as, as society grows and evolves. His next is, we will see installed solar power worldwide go from about 650 gigawatts currently to over 20,000 gigawatts by the end of the decade. I have those numbers are, I can't put my arms around those numbers except to say that I think it's sort of directionally accurate. I mean, we will increase solar power. I don't think we will devote whole continents to solar farms, as might be required, to provide really significant parts of the electricity needs. But will it increase? For sure. I agree. I think that the two headwinds to really pay attention to are we really figured out the the environmental impacts of solar power as well. And I think it's obvious that if we're able to absorb sun and convert it to energy, that's great. But the first environmental component is, are we creating issues by doing that? Are we heating the air or something above the solar panels such that it creates issues that we haven't really studied yet? Or is the shade that we're creating on the ground around where these solar farms exist, does that cause different problems? And I don't think that's been vetted out fully. Finally, the things that go into solar cells, the rare earths, et cetera, does that create, Do we A, do we have enough of that resource? And B, does that create different issues related to kitting out the infrastructure to get to 20,000 gigawatts? I don't know. But those are two headwinds that I think that sort of technology and tax benefits and other incentives are going to try to solve for. So the final sentence of the prediction on climate change is all of these things and many more will cause the capital markets to focus on and fund the climate issue to the detriment of many other sectors. Yes, that seems likely. No argument there. If one thing is favored over another, that and if capital goes toward that, other sectors are going to not receive that capital, and therefore that's they'll fall out of favor, and that's how economics works, right? That it is. Do you want to take the next one? Sure. Number two, automation will continue to take costs out of operating many of the services and systems that we rely on to live and be productive. And to that, I will throw an initial yes. <laughs> I think that one's pretty easy. I guess I would add on to that. I think the automation, the use of machine learning and artificial intelligence, et cetera, to automate, make things easier, make things faster, take, let, remove human error and even human participation in things. Do you have a Terminator type of situation where the computers take over? I think we are a very, very long way from that. But I think it's one of those areas where we each have our own science fiction types of notions of where things are going to go and everything ends up being completely different. But I think the pace of change is going to be even more rapid than that initial point dictates. And the information that we were used to sort of synthesizing and processing over the last year or two, I mean, if we even look back five or 10 years at what we've been able to automate and put in place, I think we'd be stunned. And I think that pace is going to increase. I agree with that one. Okay, for the next part, the fight for who should have access to this massive consumer surplus will define the politics of the 2020s. I think that's a very interesting way to think about it. The idea that 
something becomes less expensive. And so it is reasonable to tell people that they should therefore be willing to spend more on something else because overall their world is better, I think is a very interesting way to think about it. I'm not sure that I know how to teach people to think about it in that way. Typically, people view savings as belonging to them, cost savings as belonging to them, and cost increases as being imposed by someone else. So I think that the public relations problem of trying to get people to think in that way, look, you save this much on so-and-so, you shouldn't object to more taxes, is going to be an interesting challenge. But I see that as a not a technology challenge as a public relations challenge. That's an interesting point. I look at it too. When you look at energy has come down in cost or stayed level in cost for a very long time now. And I think it gets a lot of credit for driving the American consumer and therefore has been part of the reason why sort of consumer spending has been in good shape and the job world continues to be okay and so on. It'll be interesting to see what happens if the consumer surplus comes under attack, either because automation sort of kicks away the jobs that we'd hoped uh, would be in place or whether it gets to a point where any sort of economic shock, whether it's inflation or otherwise, is just so foreign to people that they don't know how to handle it. I think you could see a real backlash. And we've already seen it in a general sense with the rise of sort of modern monetary theory and and other socialist principles. But yeah, the politics are definitely going to be interesting. If after 11 plus years of a stock market run up and decent economic times, if people just aren't used to adversity, I think the politics could reflect that very, very painfully to those that are already entrenched in it. Okay, we will see capitalism come under increasing scrutiny and experiments to reallocate wealth and income more equitably will produce a new generation of world leaders who ride this wave to popularity. Yes, but yes as to that it will, maybe not so much that it should. I don't think the optics today are good. I think the income inequality and it wasn't so many years ago that nobody could use the genie curve at all or have any idea what it was. But the idea that measures of inequality, whether they are the most important things to measure or not, are compelling from a political perspective. And it is my concern is that moving too far in that direction will risk throwing out decades of really quite spectacular projects. Very good point there. I think that uh, I, I follow this under, quote unquote, these things run in cycles and also the close cousin to there's nothing new under the sun. When things veer too far in one direction, at least the American system is set up to really snap things back. And if the inequality in the system under which the U.S. economy is pushing forward snaps in the wrong direction, people react to it and not only vote with their feet and their dollars, but with their by pulling the lever in a way that will hopefully deal with their vested interests a little bit better, vested and unvested. So I think there's little to disagree with with the statement, but I agree with you that I don't think it's going to veer as quickly as we might think. Now, in worldwide, where I think political systems are less stable than ours in a general sense, I think you could see that in a bigger way. And if you have a huge hiccup in South America, let's say, you could have, and maybe more Venezuela's 
pop-up than we thought existed, or I don't think this is going to happen, but if in China the economy started receding and you don't have the jobs for a billion six people, that creates issues. But I don't see that happening within the 2010s in a super meaningful way. Well, that's a good segue into the VC and NYC's next prediction, which is China will emerge as the world's dominant global superpower, leveraging its technical prowess and ability to adapt quickly to changing priorities. And he refers back to his climate change prediction. So what do you make of that? Well, I think China is definitely, it's got demographics and resources and a what I would perceive to be a set of conditions that allow for political long-termedness that I think the United States does not have. I almost analogize it to being a private company versus a public one where the United States in many ways has to, you know, these aren't the right time frames, but every four years presidentially sort of re-up things and congressionally every two years, it's almost like having to file quarterly statements. China, on the other hand, it's very opaque. It seems very long-term. They've got five-year plans. You seem to have stable leadership. And to me, I think that accrues to their benefit if they are indeed looking to become a larger superpower. They seem to have the resources to be able to build and do what they want. What they don't have, they take. And we see that in our IP law issues and amongst other things. And they seem to be, on the one hand, they seem to be willing to strike economic deals and bargains with all sorts of countries and areas that they want to put their stamp on. On the other hand, I don't feel like a lot of people particularly trust them. And so I wonder how strong those ties really are. And then does ultimately China have the resources that it, or the, not only the resources, but the will to be as active as they want to be on the world stage. And then they contrast that with their various problems at home and so on as it relates to you know their climate change issues. And they've got a large number of people that they have to take care of and build an economy for unclear what that means in the 2010s, but they are a force that certainly not only can't be ignored, but have to be taken with great seriousness as it relates to their impact on things. So I, in concept, agree. I always am interested in maybe me hoping more than thinking. I'm always interested in their internal tensions. They have a rural urban problem that is significant. They have a restive Uyghur population in the western part of the country. And among the leaders themselves, there are more tensions among different factions of the leadership than I think we take into account on a daily basis. I think that the portrayal of China as this smooth running monolith is maybe a little bit exaggerated. And I think that they are going to have internal problems that are going to limit their capabilities to some degree. And I don't sometimes when you read a fear of China taking over, then I think that those things are de-emphasized and maybe reduce the accuracy of the prediction. Just to add on to that, I think that you're right. I think China's internal issues, we don't see that. We're separated by a large body of water, a significant language barrier, and a significant cultural and political barrier. So it makes 99.9% of the U.S. population has no idea how China works. I think added onto that, and this is something I talked about in our previous podcast about Chinese-Hong Kong relations, 
that's going to be an interesting window for most people. I think that, you know, as that conversion starts to take place in Hong Kong being a very, a gateway to the rest of the world through which China can project its own culture and sort of a anglicized component to it. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what the reaction looks like. On the other side of that, I don't think China really cares. <laughs> I think they'll, whatever criticism they'll take and say, hey, this is how we do things and human rights, this and economic opportunity that I, I think they sort of have already tried to build that into their thinking going forward. And that'll be a, that'll be something to watch. So the next bit on that one is conversely, the U.S. becomes increasingly internally focused and isolationist in its worldview. And it strikes me, doesn't that depend on more than one election? I, I can see it feels like that prediction is extrapolating from his present view of what's going on today. And whether that will continue to prevail for a full 10 years is harder to say. I think just by being the United States and having the role we have, isolationist, I don't think, I don't agree with that. Internally focused, again, I think that's, we're talking about climate change and infrastructure and things like that. Those may be internal situations, but I think those are dealing with externalities and external issues as much as anything else. Uh, I agree with you. I don't think there's much to that one. Should we move on to the next one? This is going to be, I hope this is an area that you know something about. It's certainly not an area that I know much about. Um, so, Yeah. So basically the prediction countries will create and promote digital crypto versions of their fiat currencies led by China, who moves first and benefits the most from this move. So, you know, this is where I have a passing interest in digital currencies and blockchain components. So I I know a little bit, but I, <laughs> whether I can make a big sweeping statement on this, I'm not quite sure. Let me start by saying I think the blockchain technology and the digital currency mode will have a massive impact on lots of different technologies and lots of different fields, whether it's title insurance or medical records or you name it. Um, I think that the delineation between a currency that's backed by the confidence of the country that issues it versus a digital currency that's backed by the security of the algorithm and that there's value ascribed to that. To me, I think many countries will adopt many different technologies to make their currencies more usable, more world-friendly, but I don't see them abandoning the fiat component upon which the country's confidence, the confidence in the country is what underpins the value I don't see that going away as much. And in fact, I think you will start to see United States, European countries, and China, all of which have their own level of either regulation and or capital control issues in play. I could see it reverting. I could see a tension developing between the Bitcoins and the Ripples and the Ethereums of the world where you've got sort of, I'd call it the Roddenberry creator of Star Trek, the Roddenberry class who wants to have this method of currency to transact things that is completely non-related to government issues coming into huge conflict with the China's, the United States, the European regulatory systems of the world, especially as the money laundering component becomes more and more regulated and sort of pinched in by governments. So it's a long-winded way of saying, I think that countries will do what they can to make the use of their currencies more expedient and more usable across the world. China being very interested in being sort of the currency of, of the world. The U.S. is already there with the dollar. 
the euro, you know, the euro's got all sorts of other problems. So that may be an area where there might be some impact. So on the digital front, I think convenience will sort of dictate that front. On the other hand, I'm concerned that I think the countries are going to be very interested in maintaining the dominance of said currency without giving up the ghost and the ability to regulate everything that goes underneath it. Well, it seems to me there's a motivator, and that is one of the things that seems to me to work from our perspective is economic sanctions. And we can impose sanctions on another country, a group of people, and so forth. And we actually can make their lives difficult in ways that don't arouse a lot of criticism. You're not killing people. You're not destroying property. You are simply restricting specific individuals or countries for their misbehavior. And it works. So it seems to me if it works, then people are going to spend a good deal of time trying to come up with ways to make it not work. And that's the standard offense-defense tension that goes on all the time. So it, it seems to me that the motivator for this, whether it goes at the pace that he suggests or in the direction that he suggests, is that there will be people who are subject to economic sanctions for one reason or another, and whether it's Magnitsky laws or whatever it may be, they're going to be pretty motivated to solve that problem. And the people who serve them, whether it's lawyers, accountants, investment people or whatever, are going to be pretty interested in solving that problem because it's a big market. Yeah, no question about that. The next part of that is the U.S. will be hamstrung by regulatory restraints and will be slow to move, allowing other countries and regions to lead the crypto sector. Yeah, sure. I mean, I agree with that. I think the United States being sort of the world currency and in many ways the arbiter of the world financial system, they're being slow on the crypto side of things is, I wouldn't say prudent, but I'm not as bothered by that from a strategic perspective as it may sound from his prediction. I think having innovation coming from different countries, especially smaller ones for which mistakes can be contained, I view that as a positive. I mean, I still subscribe to the notion that we haven't had the 9-11 of a cybersecurity disaster yet. And if we gravitate toward cryptocurrencies quickly and then have something massive up to and including even electromagnetic pulse that fries all computers and so on, that's sort of world chaos. So I like the idea of slow measured movement on that front. That makes sense. That makes sense. I like your analogy to the 9-11 yeah. So then the last part, Asian crypto exchanges unchecked by cumbersome regulatory restraints in Europe and the U.S. and leveraging decentralized finance technologies will become the dominant capital markets for all types of financial instruments. I'm not quite there yet. I think that there will be lots of technological change, but we're still at Bitcoin at the moment. We've got lots of different currencies that rise and fall with different things that happen in the market, this, that, and the other thing. I view, to me, cryptocurrencies sort of non country fiat-based currencies will have arrived when it is very easy and there is confidence in the seller for real estate to transact. And we are not there yet. I mean, you hear about, you know, some Swiss chalets and so on that can be bought for Bitcoin and a couple of places, you know, some random condos in Florida. But people still want the dollar. I think people still want the yuan and the euro and something that banks recognize. And so is it, that's not to say we won't get there. But I think it's a much longer process and takes a lot to deprogram people to sort of replace their confidence in the country and the place that they're living into a computer algorithm. 
if I were going to sell my house, I think I want to sell it for something stable, not something volatile. <laughs> right. Okay, next point. A decentralized internet will emerge, led initially by decentralized infrastructure services like storage, bandwidth, compute, etc. The emergence of decentralized consumer applications will be slow to take hold, and a killer decentralized consumer app will not emerge until the latter part of the decade. I'll start with uh, my comment, which is to say, yes, I think that the idea that blockchain and other modes are going to replace sort of a broader centralized component, I think that will be slow in taking. And I take, for example, the concept of title insurance, which is the idea that a buyer and seller could transact and that the property can move from A to B, and that should be a push button type of exercise. I think I agree with completely. But at the same time, there needs to be some sort of centralized repository for this kind of information that can be looked up and verified. One of the real components of blockchain technology, and you know, this filters to the currency situation, is that in a sense, you're crowdsourcing the validity of the transaction, meaning 51% of something has to okay the transaction in order for it to become permanent and unchangeable. So I agree with the comment that it's going to be slow moving because there are going to be some systems where you want 51% of the people ratifying transactions or data transfers to be knowledgeable in what we're talking about. If it's just 51% of random people, that may not apply to certain things. Like, for instance, if you were to transfer the nuclear codes from one president to another, you'd want that to be a stable thing. And then if you move that to property transfers, you want that to be a stable thing too. It's a lot different from sort of having a pizza going from A to B in exchange for a very liquid Bitcoin type of currency. So I think there is a lot of room for centralization, and I think that there's a lot of room for centralized record keeping. So I guess I agree with that, that it's going to take a very long time uh, for decentralized consumer applications to take hold because centralization does have its merits, especially two or three or 10 years later on when you have to go back and look something up. You want the stability of that data to be not only something that's not corruptible, but you want the original transaction to have made sense in the first place. Boy, thank you for knowing something about that, because I don't think I could have contributed one single thing. <laughs> well, hopefully I'm somewhat right, but we'll see. There's so much power and opportunity there and so little understanding. I read a very good book basically on how blockchain works, and I can't remember what the name of it is for the purposes of it, but I'll post it in the website. And I'll tell you, it's about, I don't know, 200 pages. You will come out of it just understanding it so much better and that's not to say that you become an expert, but it's basically how blockchain works. And it deals with lots of different things. Like if something's decentralized, you're centralizing it. And if it's centralized, you're decentralizing it. And how do you go from A to B to C to D and make sure that that transaction is non-corrupted? And it goes into all sorts of other good components. I'll make sure to post that. It's by an author. His name's Dieter something. And anyway, we'll take that from there. That'll be a good contribution to the show notes. Okay, next one. Plant-based diets will dominate the world by the end of the decade. Eating meat will become a delicacy, much like eating caviar is today. Much of the world's food production will move from farms to laboratories. To me, that's too bold too soon. Maybe a longer time frame is going to give that a chance to be more accurate. 
But changing the eating habits of more than 7 billion people is a longer term process than 10 years. I am a little more aggressive on this one, and I think dominate the world. I'm not sure what that means numerically, but the fact that sort of Burger King and I'm sure soon to be McDonald's have gone into the Beyond Burger, Impossible Burger world and that people are willing to what previously would have been tolerating a more plant-based orientation in the United States, I think that's going to accelerate. I saw an interesting documentary called Game Changers which really talked about why plant-based eating is not only better for you, but the perceived lack of protein and the perceived abundance of protein that meat provides is completely, in many ways, false. I think people in the United States are more open to that component. I think that in sort of other cultures, for cultures where people are ascending into the middle class and beyond, I'm thinking China with the move from rural to urban, I think that's going to go in the other direction. So I think meat is going to continue to be not only a delicacy, but an aspirational component for emerging economies as people want to get out of the rice paddies and get out of the wheat fields and so on and get on to different things. I think that's a major area. I think for other, for geographies where water is a significant issue, I think that move back to the plant-based component makes a lot of sense. That may be sort of a condition born out of necessity where the water requirements for meat are just so massive that in order to really make a go of it, either economically or otherwise, you have to gravitate toward plant components. I guess I would take issue with dominate the world because I think parts of the world are, haven't had the benefit of the meat-based diet yet, but the ones that have may be reverting back to the plant-based area. I think those places with demographic issues where heart disease and high cholesterol and all that type of thing, as that becomes a larger part of their discussion, the plant-based component is going to really sort of hit people quickly as a way to improve their health. And if it doesn't taste bad and you're not eating raw kale the whole time, I think it could snap faster than we think. Yeah. I think you make a good point. I think perhaps my response to that one has been too over-focused on the three words that you pointed out, dominate the world. Let's imagine that the prediction is not necessarily wrong if the amount of plant-based versus meat-based increases significantly. I might have a completely different answer to his prediction if he hadn't been so brave in what he was saying. But I do agree with the increase. Right. Okay, so number seven, the exploration and commercialization of space will be dominated by private companies as governments increasingly step back from these investments. Why don't you take it away from here? And what do you think? Well, just from a political perspective, imagine with all the pressures that there are and a trillion dollar deficit, you want to make budgetary allocations toward something that is very long term it's hard to do. I mean, I think it's one of the best uses of government, and I wish we did do more of it, but I think it's going to be a hard sell politically. So I'm inclined to agree that the private sector will will increase its role as compared to the governmental sector, particularly in the most developed countries. In less developed countries, it still is prestigious to be able to explore space and have your country be out there too. So I think it's going to have a tough budgetary competition in the coming years because of the demands. I think that's too bad, but I think it's true. 
Well, it leads to the next point, which is the early years of this decade will produce a wave of hype and investment in the space business and returns will be slow to come and we'll be in a trough of disillusionment on the space business as the decade comes to an end. I tend to think it's absolutely right. I mean, the amount of capital investment is so massive and the economic returns are so speculative. I think that's more of a wanderlust type of move than it is an economically driven one, not least of which... The level of complication and, as we thought here, sort of difficulty in even getting the rockets to go up and come back down, not least of which trying to figure out what to do with them once they're up there, I'm not quite sure I believe in that. I think we're decades away from mass, sort of the mass financialization of space beyond the satellite component that we currently have. I am not moving my 401k into SpaceX. <laughs> not yet. Not me either. Okay, number eight, mass surveillance by governments and corporations will become normal and expected this decade, and people will increasingly turn to new products and services to protect themselves from surveillance. I thought that that was very interesting, and it made me think about a distinction that I haven't heard made before, and that is the self-inflicted surveillance, like Alexa, and externally inflicted surveillance, like facial recognition. In one case, it's fairly easy. You just don't buy an Alexa. And my life is not meaningfully worse because I don't have one. And so if you're concerned about privacy, you certainly could avoid telling a device in your house everything that you're doing. Um, the externally inflicted, especially sort of facial recognition and some of the things we read about China, that is definitely going to increase. There's no question that the desire to maintain power by governments and to be more controlling, that's not going away. And so how you defend yourself against it, the easiest way is to be boring. As long as there's no reason to care about you, nobody is going to look at your records. Once there becomes a reason to care about you, for example, running for a public office, then there is a huge reason to look at your records and what they can discern from it. I don't know that I mind terribly if I do a Google search of some particular topic and I suddenly see some ads for that topic. Well, at least they're aimed at something that I chose to search and uh, I'm hiding amid the masses of people and hoping that nobody bothers to look at me. Right. Well, it goes to another point that he had, which is that the biggest consumer technology successes of the decade will be in the area of privacy. I would lump into that component the concept that it's going to be very difficult to think of privacy as a right anymore. I think privacy is going to graduate, unfortunately, into more of a luxury good that people have been, in a sense, suckered into providing their information and, and devaluing privacy and to be a part of society, whether you know it's to open a bank account or register a car or et cetera. The way we think about our information has fundamentally changed. And so to get off the grid while being able to enjoy many of the benefits of being on the grid, I think it's going to be a major tension going forward. And it's going to be a major political question as we move forward as well. It's a very interesting time. And as I said before, we haven't had the 9-11 of cybersecurity issues yet. I think the 9-11 of technological or data privacy I don't think that's happened yet. And I used an example in one of our previous podcasts about one of my big predictions is that there's going to be a deep fake 
tragedy, essentially, where someone has taken somebody else and either doctored a video that's put them in a compromising position or doctored their information such that it has crippled their life or, in a sense, even killed them or put them in jail, and that that's going to be discovered. And I think that's going to send a ripple across the fabric of the U.S. and the world. And it's a scary, scary thing. And that, to me, is where there may be real reevaluation of what we allow from an information perspective or even a personal likeness perspective to be put out there. Now, whether or not the genie can be put back in the bottle or not, I can't say. But there's a reckoning coming. And I don't know. We'll see what happens. I certainly don't differ with that. I'd like to take the next one because it's a particularly interesting issue for me. His prediction is we will finally move on from the baby boomers dominating the conversation in the U.S. and around the world. And millennials and Gen Z will be running many institutions by the end of the decade. My response to that is, thank God. I was born in the sixth week of boomerness in February of 1946, and there has been no topic that I can think of that has been more boring in my lifetime. We are the most self-absorbed cohort, particularly the beginning of it. The cohort is 1946 to 1963, and especially the beginning of it thought we were so important and I don't know that we have been really much more than a self-absorbed flop. I would be very happy if there was a support group for people who are utterly ashamed of their own generation. So I'm a very anti-baby boomer person because for those reasons. The interesting part of his, I certainly hope what that part of what he said was true. And I think a very interesting part of where he went with it is Age and experience will be less valued by shareholders, voters, and other stakeholders, and vision and courage will be valued more. So to me, that's a pretty interesting concept. It strikes me as the age and experience would be sort of the bond aspect of your portfolio, the stable part, whereas the vision and courage would be more the equity aspect of your portfolio. So it makes me wonder whether there should be sort of a VIX for decision-making. Should we be thinking about, okay, this could be really great, or it could be not so great, uh, or indeed pretty bad. And so should we be thinking about the volatility of decision-making if we move in that direction? Lots of things to unpack there. The first one is a person I work for by the name of Peter Atwater does a lot of work on social mood and and its impact on the markets. And I think by extension, it's really decision-making around that. And I'd be interested to hear what his take on that is. I go into two frames here. Number one, we talked a little bit about the use of artificial intelligence and machine learning and other components in terms of automating decision-making. So you have that on one side. And then on the other, I had an old Latin teacher who basically had an interesting quote where he said, human beings have an infinite capacity to commit folly. And it is one of the only things that is consistent about the human condition. So on the one hand, as we try to delegate decision-making to computers and algorithms and decision trees, against that backdrop, we have this big ogre out there 
with folly written across his chest that is constantly on the shoulder of people as they make decisions about certain things. I don't know if it's the more things change, the more they stay the same. I don't know. I think the more routine decisions are going to continue to be sort of delegated as best as possible. There's going to be less to decide. I think people will sort of assume that the computers have figured it out on certain things and that that's the right way to go. On the other hand, I think the idea for courage and vision and more human foibles will continue to not only gain popularity, but then the cycle will continue and that people who are charismatic and seem to have the way everything figured out, that's going to continue to push forward. We come in a world where I think everyone has been HR'd to death and that everything has been measured and recorded and numerified and that's led to good outcomes. I think it's led to a lot of people not being able to think for themselves. And in a compliance culture, I think people have forgotten what they're complying with in many cases, certainly the financial services world, all sorts of other bleeds everywhere. But as we sort of strive to put numbers around things, that HRification of the human condition, it's created leaps forward in some areas, but I think it's caused regression in other ones. I'd be interested to see. I tend to think that as we get into the millennial and post-millennial world now, me being a member of Gen X, and certainly I don't even know what we describe ourselves as. I think we're just sort of there. I think the labels, the cycles of these labels are going to get shorter and shorter. And not only is age and experience going to go away, but even even courage and vision might go away as we start to look for things to stick to stability on or to hang our hat on. Uh, interesting idea. I like your thought about HRification. I'm just finishing a book called Campus Land by Scott Johnston, and you may know him. I think he's a New York guy. I don't, I, I don't I, know him. I know him very well. <laughs> ah, well, he has written a heck of a book. It is the HRification that he describes of Devon College is very amusing. That's a real endorsement. <laughs> Great. Number 10. Okay, so and the final one here. Continued advancements in genetics will produce massive wins this decade as cancer and other terminal illnesses become well understood and treatable. To that end, fertility and reproduction will be profoundly changed. Genetics will also create new diseases and moral ethical issues that will confound and confuse society. Yes, once the genetic code was, in a sense, completed... I mean, now it's just a matter of sort of defining which genes cause which diseases. I think there are going to be a lot of different components that are discovered and treated, and there are going to be a lot of different leaps forward. And you look at technologies like CRISPR and so on, the potential is just massive. And uh, as stated there, the ethics are massive too, because we're really sort of moving into a sort of a Gattaca type world where there are going to be more perfect genetic features in a lot of people and for those people who can afford them and less perfect in other places. It's a long-winded way of saying yes. And I think anytime you have genetic and variation and mutation, you're going to create other issues. And you know, the extent that man really tries to play God on a lot of these different things, I think there's a lot to recommend it. And there's a lot for science that can go to help treat things that were terrible and just awful conditions, but that can be really distorted and you get into areas like eugenics and other components. It can lead to scary things. I agree. The part that I was not, I lacked the expertise to completely understand was the question of creating new diseases. And that strikes me as something that goes along to our volatility of decision-making. And that is, there is a possibility of doing something that could be quite spectacularly wrong. 
And I know that there are huge efforts being made to assure that that doesn't happen. But if inadvertently some new disease was created thanks to these advancements, it might be difficult, in your words, to put the genie back in the bottle. And so broadly as a field, it seems to me that that is one that is going to have huge strides in the next 10 years, and it is going to present some fairly serious and challenging philosophical, moral, and ethical concerns. How do you think about it? It will take some time for that to catch up. I think, too, just to circle the square here, ultimately, if we look to governments to provide leadership on this, to have committees and people in power, however temporary, et cetera, it's going to be, there will be mistakes made. And mistakes in this area could be extremely costly. Well, one of the things about these predictions, and though we have Though we have differed in some respects from AVC, from NYC, I would like to give him a hat tip for coming up with some really thought-provoking ideas that maybe we can't resolve, but at least lead to some very interesting thinking and consideration of what he's saying. So I am delighted that Bob Timpson passed these along to me, and I am delighted to have had the time with you to explore a VC from NYC's thinking. Likewise. Well, it's fun to get away from what's going to happen in a year to what's going to happen in 10 years, in 20 years, and, and to take a more futuristic point of view. It really lets the imagination wander. So what a fun exercise. You've been listening to the Wealth Actually podcast. I've had Haven Pell, who is the pontificator, on, and we've been trying to decipher a couple of different predictions that came from a VC from NYC, which was an interesting blog post that we both read. Haven, thanks for coming on. Frazier, that was a really interesting conversation. I think it's interesting to be able to listen about things that you don't know and perhaps make a contribution to some of the things that you do. And so I really am grateful to a VC in NYC for coming up with such thought-provoking ideas, and I was delighted to share them with you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually. Wealth Actually.